This is The Impulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Workforce. By 2030, if the trend continues, ASEP projects a surplus of more than 7,800 emergency medicine physicians. You may have read this or heard this from the Emergency Medicine Physician Workforce Projections for 2030 that was published in Annals in August of 2021. That news rocked the world of emergency medicine when it was first announced in April of 2021. Well, I mean, Sarah, really, a surplus could be a good thing, right? Then we can get more well-trained emergency medicine physicians into rural communities where they are clearly needed, right? Sure, but it could also have real consequences on the EM marketplace, such as fewer available jobs, more competition for those jobs, and then, of course, decreased compensation for those jobs. You know, it was a little surprising for me because, well, honestly, I didn't know that this was an issue at all. But I was immediately glad that ASAP is looking into this and emergency medicine was not blindsided by this because there is still time to make changes. But first, we need to know how they figured this out, what this means, and maybe most importantly, where do we go from here? So to do this, I caught up with ASEP president-elect and previous guest on E-Impulse, Dr. Jillian Schmitz. We spoke to her about the future of emergency medicine before she was elected ASEP president. She is an emergency medicine physician and vice chair of education at Brook Army Medical Center. And now her life is in full swing. And as you might guess, she is up to her eyeballs in the workforce report. She is reaching out and engaging with the emergency medicine community on multiple platforms. But she took time out to speak with us on August 23, 2021. And Jillian, when you hear this, thanks for taking time out of all of that to talk this through with us. Why did we take a look at this anyways? Why was this a thing? So it has been a thing for a very long time. ASAP has done a number of workforce studies, and we usually do it every seven to 10 years just to really get a pulse on where are we as a specialty? How are things changing? What does the market look like? Um, so I was actually involved with one of the earlier workforce studies as a resident, and that was where I first became involved in, in understanding at that time what did the growth look like. And historically, we had always projected a deficit. We didn't have enough emergency physicians. And not only did we not have enough ER docs, we didn't have enough physicians, you know, in general. And so many different groups, the AAMC has been studying this, um, but ASAP has always looked at this every seven to 10 years. The reason we were doing it now was that we knew at some point we would reach sort of a market saturation point. And it's hard to believe now that the first emergency medicine residency wasn't started until 1970. And so when we started this, right, no one knew what was that perfect number. How many residencies do we need to support the workforce and to take care of patients across the country? But around five or six years ago, we began seeing some changes. We noticed that there are new providers that are working in the emergency departments. It's not just physicians anymore. We also saw that there seemed to be an increase in the number of residencies. And so we were looking to see have we reached that point and where are we going to be at 2030 so that we can plan proactively? Can you just speak broadly to how do you address, how do you tackle that type of question? Where are we as a, a specialty? 
There are so many different factors that go into that, but we hired a outside consultant. So Ed Salzberg is a leading expert in workforce studies. So ASAP convened a task force that was made up of multiple different EM organizations, and we hired Ed Salzberg to really pioneer this task force and the study to collect the data. And he did it through a number of different sources. So they looked at Medicare use files. They looked at the AMA master database. They surveyed all the graduating residents in 2019 to really kind of get an idea of what is the projected growth rate of GME, what is the attrition rate out of the workforce, what percentage of ED visits are seen by physicians versus non-physician providers, and really when you put them all together, what does that project for the future of how many physicians are going to be needed? And broadly, what did they find? What did this task force find? So the task force found that for the first time, if we do nothing and market forces continue on that same trend, that we would have a surplus for the first time of emergency physicians in 2030. Yeah, that's huge. So clearly this isn't good news for everybody in the specialty. Where do you think things went wrong or how did we get to this spot where there's too much? So I realize it doesn't sound like good news, but it's also not terrible news. I think that was the misunderstanding as people interpreted this as, oh, my God, the the sky is falling and there is no future for emergency medicine. And that is not at all what we're saying. A workforce study, by definition, is already wrong from the time you publish it. So from the day that that workforce data was presented, um, there have already been market forces put into place people who would have gone into emergency medicine who are now considering other specialties, people retiring sooner than maybe they would have, especially because of COVID. Um, So already those things are not necessarily accurate anymore, right? They are projections. But it means that we are evolving. And I think it is a natural progression of where we were as a specialty that at some point we were going to get to the point where we needed to relook at how quickly we were developing our supply And really understanding how do we expand demand? How do we look at how we practice and where we practice to make sure that there is a bright specialty for emergency medicine? And I think it's really important to acknowledge the foresight that really ASAP and other organizations had at looking at this, you know, five or six years ago and realizing this has to be studied now because we don't want to be surprised by this. And other specialties like anesthesia had a surplus in the past and sort of it snuck up on them. It's much harder to make those corrections when you're not prepared for them. But this was intentionally done with a eight, nine-year window to be able to project ahead to 2030 so that we do have time to really think through this, to come up with solutions, and to make sure that we have a really bright future ahead. When we look at the scope of the problem, how big is this issue? And is this emergent, this is going to have an effect right now, graduates coming out? Or is this something for the future and we have time to be able to make some changes? So there are sort of two different things that are happening. Um, one was the more slowly growing market saturation that we do have some time. We have until about 2030 where we started to see that those numbers looked concerning for a surplus. Why we feel this pressure now was really the COVID surge and the fact that we had a drop in volumes across the country by 40%. And so that accelerated things significantly as people stopped hiring and people panicked. And it happened to correspond with the same time that the workforce data was coming out. But now, actually, we, we've seen some change in that. And the job market is starting to pick back up. I'm getting calls from headhunters. I see emails popping up advertising things. So the short-term market forces related to COVID 
are starting to improve. But the long-term issues are still there, and those are the ones we need to work with. But we do have some time. This is not, you know, tomorrow that there are going to be job crises. But I think long-term, we have, you know, a good eight years or so before we need to start really addressing some of these things. And it's going to take some time to correct some of those market forces, and that's why we planned ahead accordingly. Let's talk about how we got there. What were some of the things that happened, decisions that were made that now we are in this place where we have a surplus? So the biggest change has been the number of residencies as well as the expansion of existing residencies. And so between 1990 and 2010, we had on average about three or four new emergency medicine programs that were accredited by the ACGME. Around 2015, we saw a pretty sharp incline, but there were two things that were happening. One is that we had the osteopathic programs that used to be accredited by the AOA were now being accredited by the ACGME. So we saw this big spike for that reason, um, but those programs, again, weren't new. We just we weren't counting them as ACGME before. But also around that time, we saw an increase in the number of smaller community hospitals um, that are now starting emergency medicine residencies as well. Um, so on average, at, since 2015, it's been about nine new programs that have been approved by the ACGME. But in addition to that, um, between like 2016 and, and now, there's been about a 15% growth in the number of EM residencies. The bigger contributor to supply has been that programs that already existed were expanding their complement. So instead of having eight residents a year, they bumped up to 10 or to 12 or to 16. And so you take into account both of those things, right? Programs that have been around forever are getting bigger and you have new programs, it is substantially increasing the amount of residents who we are graduating every year. What is the role of private equity and contract management groups in driving this shift towards expansion of mid-levels and some of the private residency programs? To start a residency program, you have to have what's called a sponsoring institution. And a sponsoring institution, by definition, can be a medical school, it could be a university, it could be a hospital or health system, or it could be a corporate management group. Right now, there are no corporate management groups that are any sponsoring institutions for emergency medicine residencies. So it's not actually CMGs that are starting residencies. It's hospitals or health systems. And we have a number of them that we've been tracking. The largest one is HCA, which many people may or may not know. HCA is the largest for-profit hospital system in the United States. They have several hundred hospitals and they have now affiliated with about 16 different emergency medicine residencies um, in about the past five years. Now, many of those are staffed by some of the larger um, corporate management groups, but it's sort of the chicken or the egg, you know, who is actually the one driving it. From my conversations with both some of the staffing groups and with HCA, um, it's really the, the hospital and the health system that is, that is driving this. And in fairness to HCA and Ascension, it's not just for-profit hospitals, right? We're seeing this in nonprofit hospitals like Jefferson Hospital or UPMC or even University of California. There are public hospitals. It makes sense from a financial and business perspective, regardless of how you're funded, to open a residency. There are some benefits, right? You decrease your recruitment costs. You decrease your retention costs. You can change your staffing models. So we're seeing this across all different employment models. But from the physician standpoint, whether that group is a corporate group, whether you're a small democratic group, whether you're in a military group like myself, there is an interest in keeping that hospital or health system happy, 
right? Because if they tell you, hey, we want to start an emergency medicine program here, you're going to do it. You could say no, but you're going to lose your contract and you're probably going to lose your job. Um, so people have a vested interest in keeping that health system happy. So I think the key is, is really identifying who are the hospitals and health systems that are opening up residency programs and how do we convey to them what this workforce data is. Because remember, they're going off data that has been around for a long time that said we don't have enough emergency physicians. And in fact, as, as early as a meeting that we had last week with some of these major health systems, um, they didn't believe our workforce study when they came out. And they said, how can you predict that there would be a surplus of emergency physicians when the AAMC has come out and said there's going to be a deficit? And we pulled up the AAMC study and we showed them, ironically, that yes, there is going to be a deficit of physicians, all physicians. But if you turn to page, what I think it's 57, for emergency physicians, they actually are also predicting a surplus and ironically about the exact same number that Ed Salzberg came up with. And you could see sort of the light bulbs go on in their head of like, oh. <laughs> um, and so in fairness to them, I don't think it is common knowledge yet outside of emergency medicine that our workforce dynamics are changing. And that's part of the, the power, I think, of, of ASAP and these large uh, national groups is that we can have those meetings. You can get in with the CEO of HCA and other groups to say, hey, are you aware that things are changing? You need to know this. Um, and we can have some frank discussions about accountability and about responsibility of growth and really the unintended consequences of, of them opening up so many residency programs in a short period of time. What about the mid-levels? Talk to me about that. What's the role of mid-level providers in the middle of all of this? So we've definitely seen an increase in the number of ER visits that are seen by mid-levels or um, PAs or nurse practitioners or non-physician providers. I feel like there's many different terms that are thrown around. I think it is a widely held perception that certain groups are utilizing different ratios of non-physician providers more than others. I've never seen any evidence to support that. Um, I can tell you in the military, in the VA, we have independent practice of nurse practitioners and, and PAs, and, and we have been trying to, to fight that because that is something that ASET believes in having a physician-led team, but not independent practice, um, that everyone deserves to be at least peripherally supervised by a board-certified emergency physician, and that nothing replaces our skills or training. Um, but to my knowledge, um, between small Democratic groups, many of whom have such small margins that they are dependent on really mid-level providers to see some of the lower acuity patients. And many who say, you know, I don't want to see abscesses and lacerations. And, and really to maximize my time on these higher level, more complex cases, my practice is dependent and needs different providers in the emergency department. Other people feel very strongly that there is no role um, for mid-level providers. I think ASEP is in the middle and says, you know, we believe there are room and place for multiple different people in the emergency department, but we want to ensure that there is no independent practice of people who have not had specific board certification and training in emergency medicine, and that we can work together as a team. We can divide, you know, responsibilities amongst different acuities of patients but that especially if you have an emergency medicine residency where we're training the physicians of tomorrow, that those higher complexity cases, that higher acuity, we want to make sure that nothing dilutes their experience or training. And that's really essential in, in any sort of staffing model. But I think that's something that we will look at as we develop ED accreditation standards 
in the future of what are the right staffing ratios? What are the acuity that different places can see? And there's a lot of variability between sites. There's a lot of variability between individuals. There's variability even between nurse practitioners and and PAs. And it's really not fair to put everybody in the same bucket. Um, We know that the highest, most aspirational level is a board-certified emergency physician. But could we find a place for different people to work together in different environments? I think we can, but we need to really look at how we staff those emergency departments and how we supervise people adequately to make sure that patients get the highest quality care. When we look at regions of the United States, is this problem across the U.S. or is this a coastal problem? Because we always hear about more rural areas and the middle of America being understaffed. Were you able to look at that in that granular of a level? So it has been looked at in a number of papers that were published in annals that looked at data up until 2017 and found that on either coast, uh, we have a large amount of emergency physicians. But in the whole middle third of the country, there are plenty of jobs. It's not that we have a job crisis. We have a distribution problem where people have not necessarily been willing to take those jobs. What Ed Salzberg found was that in rural areas, the reimbursement tended to be actually significantly higher. That's commonly a reason people cite is their concern they wouldn't get paid as much. But I can tell you overall, that's not necessarily true. And in fact, in Texas and even parts of of California, those rural jobs actually pay very well. But there's still a number of barriers to people not wanting to take those jobs, right? Part of it is because maybe they don't feel comfortable without having all the, the resources or the additional expertise if you don't have all the subspecialty care I know right now with COVID, um, it's been very hard of of transferring. If there's no hospitals willing to accept those patients, it's a more risky job. And I think it's it's scary for people who haven't had that training to jump into that environment. And that's one of the things that we are very focused on is working on how do we improve our residents' confidence in working in resource-poor environments of knowing how to transfer of knowing how to push lytics if you don't have a cath lab for STEMI, things that we don't really do in a university setting but to make them more comfortable so we can look at those jobs and ensure those patients get high-quality care as well. That's something I've been thinking a lot about lately as well from a pediatric standpoint. So we've heard some of these challenges. What do you see as some of the solutions, and what is ASEP doing to help improve uh, this whole process? So ASEP has a number of different approaches to solutions to this. Uh, We have what we call the the five pillars of sort of different areas that we're targeting. The first one is raising the bar. So it seems on kind of a surface level, like the easiest way to solve this would just be to stop creating new residency programs. But you can't do that. You can't just put a moratorium on, and that's because of all the Sherman antitrust laws. But we can make a higher bar. We can suggest additional education and training standards that would, by definition, make it harder for anyone to start a residency program. So we're looking at a number of things. One would be things like procedures and looking at the number of intubations and central lines. We're looking at more kind of granular details of resuscitation. So maybe instead of saying just adult or pediatric resuscitations, maybe we have to be a little bit more specific about the types of cases that people should do and see before they graduate to ensure they're getting those exposures. We're looking at scholarly activity. I know research is not everybody's favorite thing, but if we go back to how we became a specialty in the first place, it was that we had to show the rest of the House of Medicine that we had a unique body of knowledge that we could contribute to the literature and to the specialty. And so going back to what does it mean to be an academic faculty? How 
productive are you? What are you contributing to the literature? We're looking at faculty requirements. Should it be required that every emergency medicine residency have a pediatric EM fellowship doc on staff? Ultrasound, right? I mean, these are all things that I think are really important for residents to have that exposure to. So maybe we look at changing those requirements. There's a number of other things like the primary site volume. So right now, the requirements are that your primary teaching site has to have at least 30,000 patient visits. But that's it. And it doesn't matter whether you have five residents or whether you have 500 residents. So how can we scale that? So maybe if you have a smaller primary site, you can have a residency, but you only have four residents a year as opposed to having 12 residents a year to guarantee that those residents have enough exposure. But also looking at the secondary and tertiary sites because many residencies are affiliated with more than one hospital. So there's a number of different ways we can look at what those standards are and and how we change those requirements that would make it fundamentally more difficult to start a residency program. And I think that's number one. Number two is that we're ensuring that education and training comes before business interests. And this is where it's really important that ASEP meets with all of these hospitals and health systems that are starting residencies. Do they even know what the workforce data really shows? And if they do, of putting some pressure on them externally, that there are consequences to rapid growth. And we have to be conscious of how this is really impacting the people that they're employing and making sure that they are doing this for the right reason and prioritizing those high education and training standards. Three is that we're looking at scope of practice. So we talked a little bit earlier about ensuring that nothing replaces the skills and medical knowledge of a board-certified emergency physician. We have 30 different states right now that are facing independent practice laws, and ASAP has been very vocal in advocating against independent practice for PAs and nurse practitioners. Number four was looking at rural communities and how do we address that gap where we have a distribution problem and how do we incentivize emergency physicians to look at jobs in rural areas to ensure high delivery care. And number five is expanding demand. And that's really looking at how do we think outside of the hospital? The hospital is clearly always going to be the bread and butter of emergency medicine. But let's think bigger than that. Let's think of other spaces that we can evolve into. And other specialties have done this, right? Anesthesia had a surplus a number of years ago when there wasn't enough airway stuff for them to do, and they expanded into pain management. We need our own pain. We need our own pain management, whether that's, you know, a range of different things, whether it's freestanding, whether it's telemedicine, whether it is post-acute care, which is a whole space that nobody owns right now. That could be our bread and butter, too. And that may not be for everyone. I don't think the message is you have to do urgent care for the rest of your life. Because I think that's what I hear the young physicians thinking that we're saying, and it's not. But if there are people like me who I'm getting into my 50s who may want to slow down a little bit or have a shift a week that's in a little bit lower acuity environment, how great if we could own that space too and have options for people who want to do something different than the grind of seeing two to three patients an hour in a very high level acuity COVID-infested emergency department. Um, So I think we're really looking at how do we expand that demand and taking our skill sets outside the four walls of a hospital. How does ASAP make those five pillars happen? How do they push that agenda forward? So for the first one, we're meeting every two weeks. So this is something that we've been doing all summer long um, with all of the emergency medicine programs and coming up with what we think should be proposed for new ACGME requirements. Now, ultimately, it's not ASAP that makes that decision. It's the ACGME. And it should be noted that the ACGME board does not have emergency physicians. We have some representation from our RRC, 
But all we can do is make suggestions. Ultimately, the decision is up to the ACGME board. But we're going to be discussing all of those ideas that we discussed with procedures, with scaling, with scholarly activity, with geographical requirements for them to consider and hopefully seriously consider implementing in their next round of accreditation standards. For the business interest, um, we have a, a whole list of hospitals that we know have started residencies in the last five years, and we're intending to meet with every single one of them and have a really frank discussion. And I will tell you, I was really concerned with how that was going to go, but the very first few meetings we've had have been very productive. Um, it was a lot of information sharing and went a lot better than I suspected it was going to go. Um, and a lot of people who are open to the possibility of these slots that they've already opened for emergency medicine, of potentially shifting them into fellowships or other specialties to where the need is most. And that by itself may, may change this whole trajectory. Scope of practice, um, that is really at a state level. So we've been very involved with our state chapters on compiling resources of testifying at the state capitals, of defeating legislation that would allow independent practice. We're also working on a PR campaign to really show the value of emergency medicine training to help explain to legislators and the public the difference between a nurse practitioner and a PA and an emergency physician, and really helping to educate everyone of, of what makes us different and why board certification is valued and necessary in an emergency department. And then on the rural part, we're looking and exploring with CMS and others Really, what are those barriers? How do we change the reimbursement model to make it more attractive for people to practice in rural environments and to maintain the stability of that framework and to encourage our residents to do more rural rotations? And on the demand side, we're going to be standing up a task force here this fall of really some innovators and, and really just cool, smart, engaging people who've done this. They've built telemedicine. They have built urgent cares and hybrid models with an ED and an urgent care people who really led the freestanding emergency department and physician-owned hospital models to look at how can ASAP advocate for that growth and expansion beyond the hospital in the future. What about on an individual level? What does this mean for individual physicians? What can they do? What should they think about over the next five years? I think from an individual level, the biggest thing is to get involved, to have a voice. I think people don't understand how much weight their voice actually carries. Um, so particularly on the scope of practice issue, people can go to their state medical society, join your ASAP state chapter, go testify at your state congress, you know, have a voice in, in really pushing legislation that is going to be good for patients. It's about providing transparency in, in who we are and what we do. I think that's one of the most successful and, and professional fulfilling ways to make a difference is to take an issue that you care about and help champion it. We're looking at a number of different legislative, regulatory, advocacy ways to help ensure the value of emergency medicine. So getting involved, I think, is, is the first step for individuals. You mentioned before that COVID impacted the flow, like how many patients are presenting to the emergency department. What about COVID's impact on physician burnout? You know, we've heard many stories on social media and personally of emergency medicine physicians that are saying, you know, I'm done with this. How do you think that's going to impact the workforce? So that's the million-dollar question. This has been a ridiculously difficult year, and to have now a third wave, it seems like we haven't even recovered from the last one, and then to get hit again, uh, it is moral injury. All of us are exhausted. We are getting sick again, even though we've been vaccinated. We are trying to take care of ourselves and our loved ones, but it's, it's very difficult, I think, for many of us, particularly when you're asked to take care of patients who consciously 
didn't do the right things. They didn't get vaccinated. They didn't take those health precautions that we've been advocating. And how do you maintain that strength and that motivation in this really difficult time? Like anything else, emergency medicine is is resilient, right? Emergency physicians find that inner strength, but we have to be able to take care of ourselves. And that's a big part that we've been pushing is on mental health and making sure people have resources to talk to people, to have ways to really describe what they're going through and find an outlet because this is a really trying time, you know, for all of us really going forward. But at some point, this pandemic is going to end. And emergency medicine has already been the ones who has shined the the beacon of hope and light of how things can look when this is done. We have been pushing for public health measures. We have been on every major news channel. We actually have an emergency physician in the in the White House and, and directing the Biden task force on how to do preparedness. We've been asked, you know, what do we staff our emergency departments? What pharmaceuticals? What supplies do we need to start really developing more in the United States so we're less dependent on international supplies? to ensure we have what we need, because we don't know when this is going to end, but we know we're going to get through it. Any last words for emergency medicine physicians out there? What do you want them to take home from this? There are going to be some growing pains. We knew that, right? There are going to be some challenges, but that's what we do as emergency physicians. We walk into a shift not knowing what's going to come in that day. We struggle routinely with not having enough beds in the hospitals or not having the right supplies. And this is where we really rise, right? This is where we shine and become who we are trained to do. And this is a challenge. Of course it is. Are there going to be growing pains? Yes, there are. Are things going to potentially look a little different in the future? Yeah, they probably will. And that's okay. Change is a good thing. If you look at how far we have evolved as a specialty, really in just the last 50 years, we went from literally not existing to now being probably the leading specialty in the house of medicine and all over the country right now and fighting this pandemic. So it's almost hard to predict where we're going to be 50 years from now because we're going to continue to evolve. And that's that's a good thing. We don't know yet what the attrition rate is going to be. The paper predicted that we would see about a 3% attrition, but it may be significantly higher, right, due to COVID, due to burnout. And so this is really just one data point in time. But we're going to have to continue studying this really closely over the next several years because things could change dramatically based on those changes to growth, changes to attrition, changes to who's coming to the emergency department and staffing emergency departments. So this is one data point. It gives us some ideas of how we need to really reflexively respond to that. But it is a continuum of data, of information of what things are going to look like in the near future to ensure that we have a very bright future ahead of us for emergency medicine. Pulse check. Yep, this is a big deal. Yep, things are changing. And if we as a specialty don't make some changes, there is a projected surplus of emergency physicians in about eight years. Contributing factors include an increase in emergency medicine training positions and an increase in the number of patients seen by non-physician providers. But it is not time to panic. This report came out before COVID and things are already changing. There are things we can do. ASIP suggests a five-pillar approach. One, tighten the standards for EM training by modifying the requirements to make it fundamentally more difficult to start a new residency program. Two, ensure that education and training comes before business interests. Make sure hospitals and healthcare systems are aware of this data and its impact. Three, advocate for physician-led teams that incorporate non-physician providers place value on the training and knowledge that go into becoming an emergency medicine physician. 
Four, address the gap in physician distribution and incentivize EM physicians to practice in rural areas. Five, expand demand. Explore other spaces we can evolve into, such as telemedicine and freestanding EDs. That was such an excellent explanation of the ASEP workforce study and what might be ahead for our specialty. I feel like we have a huge responsibility to our current and future residents to do what we can to address this. As Jillian said, market forces are already changing and we don't know what the future holds. But just being aware of these issues gives us a place to start. Certainly, there is a lot more work to be done, and you can keep up with some of it on the ASEP Workforce Report site. See a link in the show notes. We would love to hear from you on social media. What was your reaction to this report? What do you think is the path forward? Let us know at Impulse Podcast and subscribe to hear more podcasts like this. And thank you to our department for protecting and for supporting our workforce. And thank you to OM Productions for being our workhorse. <laughs> <laughs> See you all next time. <laughs>